1: hi everybody and welcome to this week's talking biotech podcast by collabora and thank you to collabora for sponsoring this podcast so every once in a while you start to think of what would be a good topic that you haven't really covered and every week it turns out that you flip on tv and you see something about how forensic medicine has connected a criminal to a crime that you know a cold case suddenly becomes lukewarm or maybe hot that new dna data was matched against a new database and found an old match that finally brought someone to justice and i thought i have to do this topic and who do i know who works in this area and then i thought of course <laughs> the guy who used to be in the lab with me back in the 80s and um so today we're getting, we have the opportunity to reconnect
2: with an old friend
1: and it's so super cool that we're doing this right brian <laughs>
2: It it really is. Uh, When you contacted me the other day, I was like, holy smokes, I haven't talked to this guy in a long time. And quite honestly, I'd forgotten that you were down at University of Florida. And uh, I hadn't, I I don't know why I hadn't reached out uh, myself sooner. But um, I can tell you when I got your email, I was super excited because um, I remember those old days in the lab and uh, with our with our PI and uh, we had some fun times.
1: Yeah, it was awfully good, and and so and and, and out of the lab too. I mean, uh, I lived at eight thirty-five Kimberly. Brian lived at eight thirty-one Kimberly uh, in uh, DeKalb, Illinois, and they bulldozed all those gross old buildings. You know? Oh, they did. Yeah, they built some crazy complex on that site. Good, they destroyed the evidence. <laughs>
2: yeah, probably <laughs> well, was good because those apartments were probably uh, long in the tooth and and ready for the ground when we lived there. Yeah, yeah. They long they, after what we did with them. They were
1: screaming for the wrecking ball and we only made it worse, but, uh, but Brian and I go back a ways. We, we, we were in the same laboratory at Northern Illinois university for a couple of years together overlapped. And uh, we both did master's degrees there uh, and undergraduate research. So that was, and uh, had a lot of fun in the process, but Brian is one of these unique individuals. And I, I didn't do a formal introduction. Um, Brian Rob, uh, Brian is a lab director for the state of Missouri highway patrol. And Brian is one of those rare individuals kind of like me who back in college and probably before kind of knew where you wanted to go and then ended up in that spot. So, I mean, you, I mean, you really had aspirations to work in forensic biology and, or uh, forensic, you know, crime biology, I guess you would call it. Well, what do we call it? And that was always an aspiration
2: of yours, wasn't it? Yeah, it it kind of was, Kevin, Um, you know, back when you and I were working together, we we both ended up in a, in a plant biology or a plant genetics laboratory. And I know that was kind of where you were headed uh, most of your time. Um, I was, I was never really as bright as you, as, as you could attest to, Um, you know, I was foolish enough to think, oh, I want to get into human biology. That's a little more sexy. Um, I didn't realize that, you know, food feeds the world. Um so I, I I at the time I didn't realize the importance uh, of what we were doing in that laboratory where agricultural, et cetera, could go. Um, but it was, you know, I, I believe it was as a as, as a senior, as a senior undergraduate, or perhaps early in my graduate career, um, a, a man by the name of Dennis Reeder um came to Northern Illinois and gave a talk uh for our senior for our seminar. Um, and he was from uh, the National Institutes of Technology or NIST. And um, he, he talked about this forensic DNA thing and it was kind of rather new back, back then. Um, and, and I really, um, I really kind of found it interesting and intriguing and was something I started to point my compass toward. Um, and, and, it, and to, to his credit, our, our principal investigator our PI, uh, Dr. Pollins, uh, at the time kind of, you know, was he was there to advise both of us, and he was there to help us. And he he actually devised a um, a thesis program for me to where I was really doing at the time. It was called DNA fingerprinting. We've migrated from that terminology, but um, back then he devised a program by which I was doing you know research on on plants, but I was kind of comparing through the genetics, you know, different plant lines, different lineages. Um, different phylogenies uh, to one another in kind of a modified plant DNA fingerprinting mode so I was kind of grateful to him for kind of devising that path for me once he saw that I had a modicum of interest in it yeah and so if there ever was a crime committed by a plant you were hot on it yeah right, <laughs> right. It was, <laughs> I was I was all over I was all over that in fact you know throughout my career we've had some cases in which plant material, was uh, was involved, and I um, I had thought about trying to blend those two two fields, um, <laughs> but uh, there 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 are people a lot smarter and a lot more savvy than me that uh, were able to help our lab out with that regard.
1: Is someone beaten to death with a cactus or something, or? Is
2: it... <laughs> 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 that would be interesting i think you're onto something you're, you're, you you're is that the is that the subject matter for your next novel
1: oh no um, actually well, what was so funny about about you know this conversation is i had an idea when i was in grad school that i was going to start cuz i was there at the birth of the uh, you know remember back when we were you know starting grad school internet was just kind of getting going and i was going to start a business called crimescenecontamination.com where i would sell you, sell you like plant dna that you could you know yeah. do whatever yeah. you did and spray on the you know body was, or whatever
2: it was for the more nefarious element
1: yeah i figured you know so you were here cracking the cracking the crimes using uh dna fingerprinting as a way to potentially resolve it and here i was trying to make it worse
2: trying to make it worse trying to cover, <laughs> cover everyone's tracks.
1: <laughs> we went like it it was like the like you know the one guy on the one shoulder and the devil on the other right
2: um, well, I think I think um, I think you and I, um, throughout our career and uh, working in a lab together, I think we 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 serve both roles and and alternated daily, perhaps weekly, um, <laughs> as to who is going to be whom.
1: Yeah, it's kind of true. Um, I, I guess the other question you know that comes to mind right off the top. So you're talking about DNA fingerprinting, but that kind of uh, forensic analysis has that gotten more. Um, prevalent? Or is that just kind of one tool in the toolbox of what happens in areas of forensic investigation?
2: It's really just one tool. I mean, it's a very powerful tool. um, When you when you think about it, I mean, a fingerprint has to actually be placed on a surface, you know, to get the ridge detail, you know, uh, a hair has to be left behind a shoe print has to be uh, has to be laid down a tire impression has to be laid down. Um, all, all of those things, you know, there, there has to be, you know, low cards principle, right. There has to be a transfer of some sort, whereas DNA is more ubiquitous. Obviously it's on every surface and we can swab, you know, a steering wheel from a, from a stolen car. Um, you know, we could, we could, we could swab, you know, the, the cell phone or what have you, and pick up very small traces of DNA and with PCR, obviously we can amplify the DNA, look for particular markers. And so it's, it's, um, it, it has been a, it's a tool in just a tool in a toolbox, but it's a, it's a very, very big tool and a very, very important tool. And, um, the way that DNA has, was initially developed for the forensic sciences and has evolved and developed over the years with databases and searching algorithms and the ability now to, you know, look at relatives and, uh, be able to access um commercial databases and those types of things it is a very very powerful tool uh in the toolbox
1: and when you're looking at dna when they do these kinds of dna fingerprinting what kind of markers are they looking at and has that changed over the years
2: yeah it has um you know back before i was an old gray haired um you know when i started in the laboratory i ironically enough kevin um, here I thought when I got to the highway patrol in Missouri, I was going to be doing, you know, all this, uh, highfalutin DNA stuff. I actually started off exactly where you and I did. We were running enzyme gels. Um, we were looking at protein enzymes, PGM and glow and, um, those types of things, um, back in the day shows you how old I am. Um, and then we, we did some RFLP work. Um, and then we looked at, um, dq dqa1 and a a genetic uh, panel called pm that had a couple uh markers in it um and then we and those were those were largely uh short tandem repeats but then we then we got into short tandem repeats or strs in earnest in the mid 90s and that has pretty much been the staple um for the better part of the last you know, almost 30 years, we started off looking at about six markers. We're now in, in our lab, we're looking at 24 markers, which obviously makes, you know, things a little bit more discriminating. Um, but we found that even when we started in the early days of, uh, the combined DNA index system or CODIS, you know, DNA databasing, we found that, you know, nine, 10, 11 markers, you can get adventitious hits in a, in a small database. So now we're up to 24 markers, which obviously has much greater discriminating power um, and gives you a much better um, mechanism for searching large databases. Um, So short tandem repeats is really where using, um, you know, genetic analyzers. We use, generally use uh, Thermo Fisher's 3500 genetic analyzer um, to do that work that's really the workhorse and the backbone of what we do now when you when you get out concentric rings as you peel the onion um when you get into like next gen sequencing um and snips we don't do those things in our laboratory and very few um crime laboratories do um but they are those technologies are available through private vendors and we can leverage those technologies for you know, things like bones or unidentified human remains, or even cold cases that have happened, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, where there's very little biological material remaining.
1: And when you're looking at these regions of polymorphisms, are these really informed by all the huge databases of human sequencing that we know that there's, you know, you say small, um, uh, repeat regions, short repeat regions. How short are they? Are these like SSRs or are these actually like, uh, you know, repeats
2: of, you know, hundreds of nucleotides? They're, they're, they're short repeated, tandemly repeated areas, you know, like, you know, they're, they're, you know, on the order of four nucleotides that are repeated over and over and over again, um, where you would get, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the entire region, you know, if you combine all the short tandem repeats together that we look at, we we might be looking at 400 to 1,000 bases. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a very big region, but where you know the you, the short tandem repeat low side that we are we are looking at are are found, you know, in in um, in large uh, genetic databases, um, and the the people that have put these together, largely the Federal Bureau of Investigation um, and, and others in the field that have assembled these things have, have found these short tandem repeated regions that are the most discriminating in the human population and the easiest to put in a panel um, such that you, you don't have a lot of overlap of the loci and you can pretty easily um, create these you know kits in which we run uh because we're in the forensic sciences we're more more of an applied science than a research science so we we buy most of our chemistries pre-made and we have these nice available kits for us that will that will run these markers in a, in a nice tiny little panel uh, that's easy to observe on the genetic analyzer
1: yeah, that makes sense because in a crime lab, I'm sure you have very strict protocols and everything has to be really uniform in order for to pass the uh, you know prosecution or you know the I'm sorry the defendant the defense, but here, you yeah, know, it's,
2: it's pretty highly regulated. Yeah, the
1: the other thing that comes to mind though, and this is kind of an ethical thing that I think about is. With all of the public databases that or I shouldn't say public databases, with all the information that people are submitting, so 23andMe and color and all the places that people can send in DNA and, and learn about their ancestry or whatever, um, is that information ever used to interrogate or try to or do you interrogate those data or have access to those data to potentially match them with a crime or where do, uh, where, where does, the crime, uh, detection industry. I don't know what do you call this. The, uh, crime enforcement law enforcement industry or law enforcement, where's law enforcement. Let me say that, right. Where does law enforcement find the databases? Where do the data come from to match against the data on the cigarette
2: butt? Uh, that's, that's a really good question. So, um, let me answer it this way. So let's say the cigarette butt comes to us. Um, we'll, and, and we can get a, uh, Enough DNA on the cigarette butt to do our normal searches or our normal comparisons. We get a cigarette butt from a crime scene. We do DNA on it. We get a 24 uh, a locus profile. Um, if, if we don't have a suspect or a subject that we can compare directly to, which is ideally what we want to do, we will search the law enforcement database of CODIS or the combined DNA insect system that um, that is that is run in. in maintained by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We'll run the the profile through that, enter that, register that profile with that system and run it. If we don't get any hits on that uh, that database, um, then what we can do is we can send that um, cigarette butt or the, the extracted DNA off to uh, a vendor to um, do a, a single nucleotide polymorphism or a SNP panel of, 10,000 or hundred thousand SNPs and and then they can uh, register that that profile in with Jedmatch, um, which is a, a database that is uh, for lack of a better term and I don't know if this is the right term to use, but it's law enforcement friendly. In other words, Jedmatch has, has has said that they're going to participate with law enforcement. Whereas um, Ancestry.com and 23andMe and some others have decided that they are not going to directly participate with law enforcement, um, the ethical question there is when you when you send your DNA off to those, there's an opt-in, um, there's an opt-in uh, button or an opt-in option when you submit your dna in other words would you allow your sample to be in a law enforcement database and if you opt in then that sample is then eligible to be uploaded to jedmatch which is of course law as i mentioned law enforcement friendly so it's not like we have access to or direct access to the all of these databases but um the the power of, say, let's say 100,000 SNPs being searched in a database like GEDmatch, and you probably, you or your listeners or, or others that might be listening this, probably have a much better knowledge of this than me, but the power of taking a couple tens of thousands or 100,000 SNPs and searching them in the database and even say 3 million people Um, You know, you're going to get a third order relative fairly quickly in that search. Um, And that's what makes it powerful. We don't have to necessarily have access to all the databases. We just need to have access to enough genetic information to be able to make that third order, um, that third order match. And then from there, it's handed off to uh, a genealogist who doesn't necessarily work in a crime lab? Either. That's a whole different. That's a whole different conversation. But then genealogists will assist law enforcement in putting together a family tree um, that would give possible relatives of the DNA profile that is on that cigarette butt. So that would be the whole, basically, cradle to grave. How you would go from your normal crime laboratory on into those uh, commercial third-party databases
1: yeah a genealogist isn't someone who studies genies
2: um a, no <laughs> they aren't but um you know i don't want to offend any genealogists that might be listening to this but they're a highly related industry and some of them are um searching the earth for barbara eden
1: <laughs> very good um i know i did for years um it's a <laughs> what was with major nelson you gotta you got you i mean the, the tangent yeah, or, yeah.
2: you you I'm got a voice now, man
1: i would do anything for you major nelson oh uh, well Ginny, uh, how about you just go back in your bottle <laughs> anyway um uh, going back to this this is an interesting question for me because i do 23 and me and i have um eighth uh cousin Stanislav Volta is looking for you in Ukraine you know I w- w- what the heck is this and it's nobody I ever know or any relatives I ever recognize but if I were and I certainly you know opted in you could upload my DNA but now that they have my DNA they have my snips and they have all the snips of all the people who are related to me going out quite a ways and so it really does cast a pretty wide net to be able to identify like you mentioned, the relatives. But here's the other way that this, you know, could be used in a way that's maybe kind of ethically borderline. Is there are a lot of haplotypes that we can identify that talk about where someone's from, and so you could essentially look at DNA data. And I, you know, I guess what I'm asking you is, do do they look at DNA data and say, you know, I can tell you that this person came from the father likely came from this region of Poland, and the mother looks like she's from
2: Western Africa. Yeah, I, I, well, the, the answer is no. Um, I know in our, you know, in, in the crime laboratory here um, in forensic, you know, traditional forensic work as we currently do, it, we do not do that. Um, once a DNA profile gets uploaded into um, one of these commercial databases and it's really the law enforcement officer that's, that's driving that investigation He's working with a team of professionals that might include a prosecuting attorney and others. I mean, quite honestly, God only knows what they're going to ask these databases to do, and it's possible that they could be getting that information. I know in some of the um, you know professional conferences and things like that that I go to, and some of the committees, you know, national committees and things, I'm on these types of things are discussed and talked about as as matters of theory. Um, and, and, but quite honestly, I mean, I don't know. What, what information that could possibly get you, when you know with a with a with the right SNP panel and the right searches, you can get a third order relative and probably you know find somebody fairly quickly through creating a a family tree rather than monkeying around with you know they're from this region or that region.
1: Yeah, and that just seems to be um, another way which you can maybe narrow down what a suspect may look like, but the SNPs get around that, I guess. But how ha- what is the current uh, newest and greatest with respect to just whole genome sequencing—is that used to just maybe, like you mentioned, the the hundred SNPs? But is it just make a genome and see who it matches?
2: Right, right. And so that's a really good question, particularly for 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 your targeted audience. Um, you know, we there are certain commercial um, apparatuses that 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 do whole genome sequencing. Um, so so that really is the the next technology, right? Um, we we have some vendors that do just SNPs and there's SNP panels of highly polymorphic SNPs that are used um, in you know to do searches with JedMatch, but um, there are some ventures that are doing whole genome sequencing, um, and that really is I think where the technology is going to be say in the next decade. Uh, the big question for me, particularly as a laboratory director, with you know, things like humans and budgeting and all that stuff is trying to figure out um, where I move my laboratory. If we are going to be migrating from your traditional STRs and doing more whole genome sequencing, or are there going to be interim steps between now and then? And and how long is that going to be cost benefit analysis? And is the juice worth the squeeze? So those are a lot of decisions that the forensic community is going to be grappling with in in, say the next five to 10 years.
1: And maybe this is a good question just to kind of wrap up the first segment here. Uh, What's the strangest thing you've ever had to pull
2: DNA off of? (laughs) I've had some, I've had a A lot of, I should should say, I
1: should say professionally.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I've had a lot of odd things that I've pulled DNA off of quite honestly, and it really runs the gamut, but I think uh probably one of the oddest ones was a uh identification we we did in a plane crash where we were uh where there were some very very small body parts and one of the body parts was actually a penis so uh that was that might have been one of the stranger ones
1: Hmm. yeah okay well that's yeah that's that's kind of and i don't normally think of the forensic work in that way right because we always think oh it's crime scene kind of thing but here's a case of identifying remains. How much, how much of the work, if you had to kind of make a pie of detection work that you do, how much of it is crime versus connecting, you know, uh, you know, a loved one with remains or maybe other applications?
2: Um, I would say about you know, 98 to 2%, you know, maybe two or three percent of the work we do is um trying, you know, look at unidentified human remains and and uh, compare them back to loved ones. It may be as high as 5%, um, but uh, but most, I would say the vast majority of what we do in our laboratory is is crime, you know, crimes against humans.
1: Well, that's a pretty good place to leave it for now. So we're talking to Brian Hoey, he's the lab director at the State of Missouri Highway Patrol Laboratory. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Collabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. And now we're.
0: This episode is brought to you by Collabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C O L A B R A dot A P P
1: back on a talking biotech podcast by Calabra. And we're talking to Brian Hoey. He's an old friend of mine from college. And, and uh, in trying to remember who or trying to find a good speaker on forensic applications, I couldn't have thought of a better person than uh, someone who I've known for so long. Well, I don't know. Last time I talked to you, I think you called me once or I called you because you heard me on the radio, like on NPR or something. Yeah. And, and, and we connected there briefly, but not since. And so it's really kind of too bad. We had a a lot of fun back then. So.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we we really did. We really did. And I, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things. I don't know if your listeners want to hear, you know, old home week or anything, but you know, I, I really, I, I've become so uh, you know, you, you go on your life, you come in, you go to work every day, you, you know, you raise your family, you do the whole thing. And and you, you know, I, I become uh, kind of, uh, selfish in the fact that I haven't reached out to you or other old friends. And, um, it's just really great reconnecting. And, uh, I I feel like I should jump on a plane, head down to Gainesville and have a beer with you. Yeah, we could do that
1: anytime but or, or somewhere in between but but the, the 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 cool part is i'm always up in missouri uh for one thing or another I, it was going to seemed like i was going to columbia missouri for something but conferences or whatever i i and i didn't think that you were up there and but but next time i'm up we'll definitely do something absolutely 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 yeah i guess the um the uh other big part of this is you know where is it where are where is forensic application going? So, what are the new tricks of the trade, and maybe what are the newest tools that people who are maybe thinking about this as a career might consider thinking about it? You know, getting their tool their toolbox in order now for applications in crime biology is it more computational, or where are we going?
2: Yeah, that's a that's another really good question, my friend, and um, I'm glad you asked for your listeners, particularly those. Are young folks and, and might be looking to get into this technology, um, you know, I think because the CODIS database has 20 million DNA profiles in it, that's a lot of data that is um, that is uh, typed with um, STR as a short tandem repeat. So I don't think we're going to be migrating away from that anytime soon. Um, but as the as the uh, field starts to migrate, as we talked about in the first segment, with regard to SNPs and whole genome sequencing and searching of commercial databases, um, I think the the world is is moving toward um, forensic investigative genetic genealogy, or FIGG, um, otherwise known as FIG, where you know we're going to be doing more, and in, instead of direct comparisons between a crime scene sample and a subject or a direct comparison in the database like CODIS, we're gonna be using genetic genealogy to be searching databases for third, second, third, fourth order cousins or, or relatives um, that we could, we could you know, build a family tree and work back on and you know this is what was done in like the golden state killer case that people probably heard about in the news or most recently with this with this kid in um the, with the four uh people that were murdered in idaho um these things are gaining a lot of traction in the forensic world and i think if you if your listeners or young people are looking to get into um forensic dna they would they would really benefit from you know doing some whole genome sequencing SNP analyses. Getting really, really proficient with the genetic um, genealogy or, the, or statistical analyses of how a population genetics works and how we can do the statistical computations um, to compare a DNA profile between a person and a relative to be able to say that this, these two people might actually be related because, you know, do, using likelihood ratios and those types of mathematical computations. So I think somebody that might be looking into getting into this would be really beneficial um, looking into those technologies. And also, you know, data information scientists, I mean, you're you're probably more versed in this, but when you're talking about whole genome sequencing and SNP analyses with, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 SNPs, you're telling you, you know, huge computational powers, right? and large data sets, and a lot of informatics. And I don't think that these three things were being thought about when you and I were attending grad school at Northern Illinois University, or at least they're not things that we were exposed to.
1: No, no I mean, I think back then, and just just for, for laughs, I got a computer for graduation that had a 40 megabyte hard drive. Uh, today, we're filling five terabytes without a whole lot of problems
2: exactly exactly <laughs> so i think i think we're going to be looking with you know these types of informatics i think we'll be looking at petabytes or or even whatever the next you know order of yeah. magnitude would be
1: yeah zeta zeta zettabytes. but this is they're actually going to start making up new ones uh pretty soon but I, but it's but it's such a massive amount of data that can be processed and that we can deal with that we uh, that those kinds of skills are really important um i had an opportunity to work as a professional witness and or not really more a, uh, a subject matter expert in in a in one of these forensic trials, and it was awesome because we were able to solve a really old question by looking at ancient data, and uh, and is there still a lot of room for that edge too, like working with uh, lawyers and either for prosecution or defense in the area of forensic DNA
2: biology. Yeah, there is. I mean, obviously, in, in my arena, we work with prosecution most frequently because, you know, we work in law enforcement. Generally speaking, law enforcement is going to find a piece of evidence and they're going to go out and they're going to find a subject and we're going to make a comparison. Those guys are going to match. And then, you know, we're going to go to court with it. That um, you know, obviously, you know, every person has the right to a uh, robust and, and uh, overzealous uh, uh, defense um but generally speaking we kind of tie things up in a in a pretty good bow and 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 we don't make it completely bulletproof you know but but things are things are pretty good in that regard so we we work mostly on the on the prosecution side but i think if people are going to have a very robust defense calling in professionals like you and other people to vigorously question us as forensic scientists to ensure that we got the right answers, and ensure we use the right science, ensure what, that we we looked at the right ethical questions, we have the right regulations and guardrails in place. Um, I think that's very, very important. Um, you know, I, I, you see all the time on on TV, right? You you have, and, and no matter pick a profession, but just you know, just to kind of narrow it down. You see, like the police, for example, Derek Chauvin and this Tyree Nichols thing down in uh, down in Tennessee. You know, the, the cops cops being bad, right? And that doesn't paint all cops as being bad, but you know, it does it does give somebody um, pause to look at law enforcement and say, okay, there, there's there's some bad apples. But you know, the crime laboratory we're unfortunately attached or fortunately attached, however you want to look at it, to law enforcement. So a lot of times that gives us a black eye as well. So I encourage uh, professionals like yourself and other biologists to come in and look at our profession, scrutinize us, ask us the appropriate questions, and ensure the defense and ensure the jury and ensure the judge that the best work has been done. And if it hasn't been done, that must be exposed.
1: Oh, very good i mean it's a really important point because it it only makes your situation better with better criticism right
2: oh um, precisely i mean I, I was you know i was i was kind of doing a little bit of research on yeah i haven't uh, i haven't gone back and listened to all your podcasts but i've listened to quite a few of them and the one i took interest to was your our your discussion about um robert kennedy jr and, and some of the conspiracy theories he was doing you know you take i, I can't remember the exact line you said but you know it takes, you know, 212 um, scientific papers or something like that to refute one conspiracy theory, right? Or something like that. I'm sure you can go back to the episode and pull the quote. But that kind of resonated with me because, you know, in science, if we get it wrong just once, man, we are just, we're, we get our teeth kicked in pretty bad. So we've got to get it right. And and the, the only part, to, the only way to get it right in science is to to, to have open debate and discussion and have scientific professionals question what we do. And if there is a question that you have or another professional may have about our science or about a particular case itself, well, we gotta expose that and get that out there and show everybody that we did do the right thing. And that only strengthens our science and in the medical community, it strengthens the medical community and in, in the virology community, it strengthens, you know, virology and vaccines and all of that. Yeah.
1: Well, it's, it's like my dad always said, it, it, it only takes one aw shit to get rid of a thousand attaboys. That's and, exactly right. Uh, <laughs> and, um, I guess the other big question, a lot of people do kind of look at the world of forensic crime because, you know, we see it on TV and, you know, it always seems to be kind of a cool and glamorous thing from, you know, NCSI or any of those shows, Quincy, you know, and,
2: People You know, you you, you and I are probably the only two listening to this podcast that that know that reference. Um, I still have a bunch of buddies that call me Quincy because we're all about the same age and people have no idea what that reference is for. And, you know, and I'm so old now, you know, CSI hasn't been on TV for a dozen years. That was the big thing in the 2000s. But that's been off the off TV for a while. So we're running out of forensic references to, uh, you know, it's not sexy anymore. Um, our applicant pools have shrunk because of it as well.
1: Well, yeah, Maybe that's something we can work on. Yeah. Because remember, remember Quincy, Sam, someone's eating the chili on the hot dogs. That's what they all had. More people are going to die. Sam.
2: <laughs> well, you know, that was, that was back in the good old days of, you know, he lived on a boat, he was misogynistic as hell. Those yeah. were the good old days of TV. Yeah.
1: Back. And he, I'll never forget the one where they had the punk rockers when <laughs> Or they went to the punk rock show, Sam. They're all doing some kind of crazy dance in the mush pot. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, yeah, that good good times. I guess yeah. So if so, you say the field is getting a little bit, you know, uh, harder to recruit, and so there's probably two reasons for that. Is that one guys like you, you come in as a you know, really solid technician with a good toolbox. And then if you do your job, well, you get sucked in the management and directorship like you're in now. And so how is that transition work for you?
2: Uh, it's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, initially, the transition was crappy because scientists make shitty uh, supervisors. Um, can I say that on the podcast? You can beat that out. No, you just um, did. We <laughs> you know, that, you know, when we were working together in, in the laboratory, Northern Illinois University, you know, they, they, they taught us biology. They didn't teach us leadership. And so, you know, one day, um, someone pointed their finger at me and said, Hey, you're going to be the next supervisor. I'm like, great, I can do that. And, um, you know, when, when you're no longer doing biology and you're leading people, um, people are messy and, um, it took me a long time to figure out how to actually do that. And, and basically Kevin, what I had to do was I not only had to learn, read books, um, take some courses, but I actually went back to school and did an MBA um, just so I could learn how to do it well. And the question I asked myself was, how did I get to be not so good in biology, but good enough to get by um, and, and, you know, and, and do the work I do, not, not make too many mistakes, uh, get on some committees, be nationally recognized as a, as a forensic biologist. How did I do all that? Well, I went to, I went to school, I went to grad school, I studied, I did a lot of hard stuff and I became pretty good at biology. Well, hell in order to be pretty good at leadership, I I had to go and take some classes and learn formal leadership. So, so that's what I did. It, It wasn't the easiest of transitions, but, um, you know, one thing I did realize is that, um, it, the things that we're talking about right now, you know, SNPs and, and whole genome sequencing and, and genetic analyzers and all these things, it was getting very, very challenging with, you know, being a supervisor and a technical leader and, and and also to, to continue to be on the cutting edge of the science and continue to learn the science and be good at it. So I had to make a decision. I couldn't have one foot in, management and one foot in biology it just didn't work that way so i transitioned completely out of biology and into full-time management and then immersed myself in that management piece because it was very challenging to do both
1: yeah i had the same thing in uh, at the university level when i went into being a department chair i still kept a lab running and it was tough um but there was i realized I had a good natural knack for being in management and leadership, but I didn't have all the tools down. And I had to do a lot of reading and a lot of uh, learning about how you manage people and uh, play to their strengths, not just, you know, here's what I think yours should be. And, you know, we could go on all day about that. But um, it, it's interesting to hear your perspective. Um, how how about um, students who think that the world of forensic biology is, is for them. You know, what kind of classes do they need to take to be somebody who you would consider hiring, say, with a bachelor's degree or a master's degree?
2: A uh, really good question. Um, so formally, you know, in order to work in our laboratory and have access to the CODIS database and be um, accredited in, um, in biology, a, a student, a, someone who comes to work for us or any crime laboratory for that matter, Needs to have coursework in genetics, molecular biology, biochemistry, and population genetics, um, or statistics, population yeah. statistics. So those those four um, core courses um, have to be there. And the the challenging part is, you know, many many biology biology programs around have those or elements of them, but they're not like, for example, there's very few courses that are called molecular biology anymore, right? So it's you know molecular genealogy or molecular genetics or you know molecular biology of prokaryotes or something. So it, it makes it challenging for us to be. We'd have to go in and check your transcript, make sure it has certain elements of molecular biology and those types of things. But generally speaking, those four staples are what are uh, base baseline ground truth to be able to come work in a, in your garden variety crime laboratory. But as I was alluding to a moment ago, I mean if 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 students have some coursework or some, um, some laboratory work in next-gen sequencing or whole gen- genome sequencing and things like that, they're going they're going to make themselves much more employable by a modern crime laboratory because they think that's the way things are trending. The one thing the one thing that I would like to see, Kevin, and I, I don't want to say this to denigrate my own employees or others in the forensic field, but it's just an observation I've had over the past 30 years is, Students are coming to us that have, that are lacking in critical thinking skills. Um, and I think anything a student can do to get themselves into graduate level coursework that is not of the uh, online variety, that is of the variety of having to defend your work, either in a formal thesis or a formal dissertation, or even having given seminars where your peers question you and you have to defend what you do. So you can challenge your own critical thinking. I think that uh, that would be uh, very, very helpful to both the student and their prospective employer in a crime laboratory. That's awesome. I love that you said that. And you don't know the class
1: that I teach right now, do you?
2: No, I don't, which what are you teaching?
1: I, I teach a class called critical thinking in medical and medical and agricultural issues or something. It's something like that. And it came down to the fact that I saw students, you know, we have all the information we need in our smartphones, but there's also a lot of crap in there. And so, how do we tell the good stuff from the bad stuff? And how do we sift through it? And how do we fool ourselves? And how do we fool others? And how are, are we being fooled? And and the idea here is just to get that critical interrogation of information um and not not just you know he, he, not memorizing data anymore not memorizing you know where are the ends in the ring of your adenine it doesn't matter i can look that up but right, what right. I, yeah so so just really emphasizing more of the critical analysis and how we make mistakes no you're
2: exactly right and and i'm glad you hit on that okay so for, so number one thank you for teaching that class because um i couldn't think of a better person to be think to be teaching critical thinking than you because by my recollection, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but by my recollection, you were in forensics, right? Like yeah. the traditional yeah. forensics, like debate, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you were very, very good at that. And I, and I know, um, just personally, between you and me, we never debated per se or argued, but there was always a a healthy repartee, and <laughs> um, and and that and that taught me a lot, right? That that really sharpened my skills to be. Uh, to be able to discuss and debate, and, and be able to talk with with other people, because um, you and I were always—I mean, whether it, whether it be something that we heard on the radio or a rock band or some ridiculous rock band that you might have been in at the time—we we always had something to discuss and debate. And I don't think a lot of these young people have that. I think they're very insular because I think there's a lot of online learning. Um, there's a there's not a lot of um, engagement between people anymore. I think a lot of entertainment for young people is online or on their phones, and when they come into the workplace and they have to actually defend themselves, defend their work, um, and it doesn't have to be even in a forensic biology crime laboratory setting. In other words, like court or um, or a deposition, but just when they do their training, right when. I come up and ask them, you know, Hey, I saw your training binder. What did you do here? They just lock up and are unable to defend their work. And it's, it really is astonishing to me. And then, and then the, the inability to not only defend their work, but the inability to defend themselves. I get Kevin, I'm not kidding you when I tell you, I get phone calls from parents of, (laughs) you know, of 25 year olds who are are in the workplace, earning a paycheck from me (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> and the parents call you and say you know why don't you lay off on roger a little bit he's a little bit upset about it. Is, is
2: yeah that- <laughs> he, did, he just lost a level in Fortnite last night so he's still recovering from it
1: <laughs> it's it's funny that you bring all this up because i actually make the students take a position on an issue and debate it or i'll put the issue on the board and say you know here's the here's the here's the point you're a for- affirmative arguing for it here you're arguing it against it and have them support um support with their stuff with data and they prepare a little bit and tonight their assignment that was due today at midnight is um take a position on germline gene editing for either therapeutic preventative or enhancement and uh you know where do you feel in there where how do you feel it should be allowed or not allowed and 500 words defend that position and i have 138 essays to grade tonight after midnight <laughs> which <laughs> which will be fun um but, no, but it's fun <laughs> but, but but this is the point though is getting them to take a position and defend it and and cool. give me why you feel the way you do and um and for many people this is the first time they've actually had that kind of ass uh, that kind of essay or that kind of
2: request you know, and, and you know, there's there's so many there's so many cool things about that, Kevin, and and um, not the least of which is the fact that, you know, germline editing, right, is is, it is what it is. It's a, it's a factual thing, right? But a lot of your students and people in general might have some emotional connection to that, either for or against, and I, I think that a lot of young people today. Their, their emotions are way out over their skis, you know, prior to their brains engaging. And, and you know, they might be, you may read in a lot of those essays that they, they have a, an emotional connection to germline editing. Oh, we can't do this because, you know, whatever. And, and they're not using a good logical argument, but they're using a, an emotional argument. And that's kind of what I see with our young people coming out of uh, colleges and universities today is that when they when they're going to discuss something or debate something with you, the emotional aspect is there, but not the logical component.
1: Yeah. And then that's what they're actually going to debate tomorrow in class after they've uh, turned in the paperwork. You know how much of this balance versus emotion versus logic and uh, how much of this could is how much of your feeling was emotional. And I fully expect some of it will be. And just for them to understand that it is, because I I the reason I gave this assignment, which everybody will probably get good scores on, because you know, how do I, you know, know you're not allowed to feel that way? Um, because everybody is going to have to encounter some level of gene editing in the next 30 years, whether it's for a therapeutic reason, whether it's for and it may not be germline but somatic, or you know, there may be decisions that have to be made. You may see access to new therapies. Uh, for something like sickle cell disease, where they can eliminate this from a population um, by doing some germline gene edits. And should we be doing that? And that's, you know, we're making decisions for uh, people who will be alive 10 generations from now that we will never know, but we're going to make a decision about their genetics. It's kind of like the 21 they're 23 and me, I'm in the database, go ahead and use my data any, any way you want. And them catching a criminal 30 years from now who isn't even born yet because right. i gave and my he, de-
2: yeah yeah okay. well exactly i you know i uh and those are those are interesting things to discuss and debate and i think i think once if we take the emotional element out or we mitigate the emotional element i think you know based if we base our discussions on logic i think we can come up with much better um guardrails around these things you know because even you know here we talked about in the first segment and i'm i'm you know, all in favor because of what I do, right. I'm all in favor of genetic databases, right. The more data we have, the more searching we can do, the, the, the closer we're going to get to, to finding the, the bad guy or, or, or identifying the, the, the unidentified human remain or reuniting families or, um, you know, being able to, uh, find that terrorist that, you know, kind of slipped through the net or, whatever, whatever application you can think of. But I, I, but personally, right, emotionally and personally, I have not put my DNA in a database, because by my decision of putting my DNA in a database, I condemn both of my children, who, to this point, hitherto for have not made that decision. And so if my two daughters make the decision to put their DNA in the database and we make that as a family, then, okay, I'll put my DNA database, but I don't feel as though I, have, I presently have the right to condemn my children or my grandchildren or others um, to being exposed to, to that database because they don't have that voice, right? Right that's a personal decision and something we can debate on another, on another one of your uh, podcasts, but, but that is just kind of the way I look at that in, in so far as is logic and decision. making.
1: That's really good. I'm, I'm going to have the, uh, I'm going to have the, uh someone from 23 and me on shortly in the podcast series. And we'll talk about these issues. Cause I think that's something i never really thought about much and I've condemned my daughter.
2: <laughs> oh, well, <laughs>
1: you know, unless For she
2: has a, Unless she Perhaps gets it down, is, is a is a is, is more of a loaded word. <laughs> we need. Oh, to maybe. Use,
1: but, yeah, but but, but you, know, the, the, you know But then again, if maybe she's not my daughter, you know maybe. But um, you know who knows?
2: No, um, like she's. Those, are, she, those yeah. are the other challenges with these things.
1: Yeah, no, she's hundred percent my daughter. No, but that but that opens up a whole another th- question. You know the all of the things that come up with um that are so interesting about people who have. Uh, realize that they have a higher propensity for disease or they just were adopted and they've discovered family. A lot of interesting edges on that stuff. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But well, there are, there are a lot
2: of ethical issues, um, you know, even regarding what we were just talking about. We we have, uh, our laboratory has, has, has participated in um, a lot of identification events. One of which was, I don't know if you remember about, uh, was it a, a dozen years ago, there was a tornado in Joplin, Missouri. And we did some identification of uh, unidentified human remains with that. And we 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 did not want to do it for for the logical biological reasons. Um, and plus, we were not really good at doing those types of comparisons back then. We protested up our up our leadership chain apparatus, and we were basically forced by the government to go ahead and do that. And and that's you know that's neither here nor there. It's their decision to make. We're their laboratory we went ahead and did some unidentified human remains. Most of it went re- pretty well. But there were a few of them where we said, we got some good news and some bad news for you. Good news is we identify, identified your loved one. The bad one, the bad news is they're not your loved one. And uh, those were some hard reports to write.
1: You mean like they were someone who was in their home they believed was part of their family who really was... From some other family or some other, yeah, they background. were,
2: you know, they were Uncle Bob, and you know, they weren't related at all, or they were, they were oh. raised as a son or a daughter, and they were not genetically, you know, linked to a parent, um, and that's a, those are tough, those are, that's a tough way to find that out, you know, you, yeah. this person was just killed in the in in the in this tornado. You know, good news is they weren't your person, so move on. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, still, and that's yeah. not that's not a that is that is not a business that I I signed up for.
1: No, that that's really interesting. You know, time flies when you're having fun, Brian. This is that we probably should put a lid on it just for time consideration. Going a little long. But, um, you know, let's do this again when we have some more topics to cover. It's a pretty dense field. And now that we've connected, you can think of other things that you come up with in your line of work or things you've seen or technologies or ethical questions or other quandaries.
2: Um, let's do this again, okay? Sounds good, my friend. It was really good getting, uh, getting in touch with you. It was a really good, really good conversation. Um, I really miss our repartee. And yeah, let's do this again, either on a podcast or just, you know, behind a big long wooden plank.
1: <laughs> yeah, we can definitely do that. We got we we got to get together one of these days. We'll do it. We'll do it. We got to scrounge up some of the other old lab mates or something. Who knows where they are. I right? mean, let's let's uh let's table this till next time. To the listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Biotech podcast. It certainly is a little bit different. It's awesome to be able to talk to someone I haven't talked to in a long time about a subject I always was a little more curious in. And uh I guess the good news is that if uh if you ever go uh in a plane crash or a tornado, someone can probably identify who you are, but you may not be who you think you are. <laughs> uh, the other thought is, you know, when you're, and I never appreciated when you're putting your information into one of those databases, everybody downstream from you is going to be a, at least partially in that database. And a number of generations may have their security in their um, I guess their privacy even compromised by a decision you're making now. So think about it pretty hard. This is the Talking Biotech podcast and we'll talk to you again next week.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech sponsored by Colabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Colabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at colabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.